0: Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Philippians 1, 27-30 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, Good morning. Um, my name is Andrew, and I am not one of the members of our preaching team here at LifePoint. Uh, at least, not usually. As uh, like Zach said, I'm the student ministries director here. Uh, my wife and I are pretty new we've been here for just over three months and so there's a lot of you that we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet Uh, we would love to meet you today after the service out in the foyer shake your hand um, and get to know our new church family Uh, but I'm excited to have this opportunity this morning be able to work through Philippians with you guys and uh, there's a a reason that Philippians, at least in my experience, is probably the most preached through book in the Bible. Uh, People love to preach through Philippians and for good reason. Uh, Philippians is just chock full of deep uh, convicting truth. Um, And Craig asked me to preach about six weeks ago and I said yes and he said I want to give you your text ahead of time and so he said it's going to be Philippians 1 and then he paused to go to his computer and uh, look up the exact reference. And in those 20 seconds going through my mind is, uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul in jail rejoicing because the gospel is going forward. uh, And he's had a chance to preach it to the Roman guards. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to get one of those texts that I love in Philippians 1. And he said, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And I said, I just paused. I'm not really sure what that is. I don't know what's in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I thought it just went straight into chapter 2, which is another famous text that we're going to be going through over the next two weeks. But as I've been studying this text over the last couple of weeks I've grown to love it and appreciate it and put it on a pedestal just like the rest of Philippians 1. Um, it's a great text um, and so we have two goals in this series that we've kind of gone through Um, with you guys. Uh, The first one is that you guys would grow in your, your knowledge and your love of Christ, that you would discover, maybe for the first time ever, maybe anew again, this unexpected joy of being more and more dependent on Christ. And then we have this secondary goal that came out of uh, this uh, sermon series being crafted by our discipleship training model that we wanted to spend more time in Bible interpretation and model some good principles for that uh, in our sermons, give some more time to that than we usually do. And so that's how we're gonna to start today. We're gonna to march through the text together and try to pull out Paul's main idea. What is the, the main point that he's trying to get across? We're gonna to try to extract that together and then we're gonna take that main idea and we're just gonna unpack it for the rest of our time together. So let's start looking in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. All right, you can stop there. Um, you want to underline, circle, highlight this in your Bible uh, for this text. This is a command which you may have already picked up on um, and typically in Bible uh, interpretation when you're reading a passage, if there's a command, if there's some directions, um, that's gonna be really important to the main idea what the author's trying to get across. And so not only that, but here in Philippians, it's not just a command, but it's the first command in the whole book So Paul has spent the first chapter, he's prayed over the Philippians, he has told them about his circumstance in jail, uh, facing life or death in prison, and now he's shifting uh, into giving instructions to the Philippians, giving them some commands. And this is the first one in the book. And then on top of those two things, he says right at the beginning, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a guy riding from jail, potentially facing death, and he says, only do this. If you're only going to do one thing, make sure you do this. And so we don't want to miss this. Don't want to miss that command. We want to understand it properly. Uh, but the first time I read through this text, read this command, uh, I thought that's really broad. Uh, that's really, really broad, Paul. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That could mean a million different things. Could we be more specific than that? Can we uh, hammer down a little bit further for parents in the room or kids, especially now in summertime, when parents go off to work during the day, kids stay home. This is like a parent leaving you a note you wake up to as a student and it says, hey, straighten up the house for me while I'm gone. That could mean a lot of things. What do you mean straighten up the house? You want the laundry done, the dishes done, our house is a mess. What do you mean straighten it up? Uh, We could mop, we could vacuum. Could we be a little more specific, please, mom? Uh, What do you want me to do to straighten up the house? And so this is a broad command. We want to get a little more specific, and Paul's going to do that in the next couple of verses Uh, but before we move on to the next few verses we want to clear up one more thing about this first half of verse 27 that's the word worthy Uh, we got to get a good definition of what the word worthy means because it's not really what we generally use it as when we ask is someone worthy of this when we sing on sunday morning is he worthy about christ is he worthy of honor and blessing and glory we mean Does Christ deserve that? Has he earned honor and blessing and glory? And of course with Christ we say, yes, absolutely. He's earned it. He's deserving of those things. But that can't be what Paul means here when he says live your life worthy of the gospel. He can't mean that we should live a life that's deserving of the gospel or a life that will earn the gospel. This is the same guy that said you're saved by grace through faith. The same guy that said by works of the law no one will be justified. Uh, Living a life that's worthy in a sense deserving of the gospel is contrary to the gospel it's the exact opposite of what the gospel is and so it's not worthy in the sense that we generally use it. So I think it's helpful for us to lay down some synonyms uh, that might be helpful uh, so we could think of worthy as let your manner of life be fitting of the gospel let your manner of life accord with the gospel let your manner of life correspond with the gospel that you proclaim and so it's more of a a fit a fitting lifestyle of someone who proclaims the gospel rather than a a life that's earning the gospel or a life that deserves the truth of the gospel That's a small distinction but we've got to make that one all right So let's see if we can get a little more specific in the text. If you left a note for your kids saying straighten up the house, this is the back of that note that says clean the bathroom, vacuum the floor, and fold your clothes. This is the specifics. How are you going to straighten up the house? How are we going to live a manner of life that's worthy of Christ? Look in the second half of verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. You're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. All right, Paul can be a lot clearer here if you see on the screen. One spirit, one mind, side by side. So there's clearly some unity that he wants us to have here, some togetherness in this living a life worthy of the gospel. So that's our first kind of ingredient here. Let's keep going. First half of verse 28. And, right, so we're adding to this list, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, so on top of unity, on top of this togetherness, we also have this fearless attitude, we're supposed to not be frightened by our opponents, so we've got two ingredients, we've got unity and we have fearlessness and there's one thing that we're missing is the context for this, what is threatening their unity, what's causing them to potentially uh, scatter and what is causing them to maybe be fearful, What, what should be potentially frightening to them and Paul's gonna give that a little later on, we're gonna skip the second half of verse 28 but we'll come back to that I promise. Uh, Verse 29, here's the context for us. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have that's the context for us is suffering. He says, you've been gifted not only to believe but also to suffer. And he says, you're engaged right now in the same conflict that I had. If you guys remember from Acts 16, we went over this the first week of this series, Paul was arrested in Philippi. So they've witnessed his suffering firsthand. And he says, this is the same conflict that I still have Right now, as I'm sitting in jail, Paul's still facing suffering and persecution, and he says, that's coming to you. That's the context for the Philippians. So we're gonna take those ingredients and we're gonna make a main idea from Paul. Well, Paul is, is communicating what he's trying to get across. He's commanding the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel by suffering together fearlessly by suffering together fearlessly and we're going to take those last three ingredients and we're going to unpack those today. The first one is suffering. That's the one that we would like to skip over. That's and the list of things to straighten up the house that's scrubbing the toilet and you might just read that on the list and act like you didn't see it and skip down to the next one and let's just move on with that list this is the one that we would like to skip over and so naturally it's the one that we're gonna spend the most time on uh, this morning (laughs) because we need it Um, and we're gonna break down suffering in three questions. Three questions help us understand this. The first one is just, are we called to suffer? Are we still today in America in 2022 called to suffer? And I want to make a distinction here. This is suffering for the sake of Christ, right? That's what Paul says he says uh, you should suffer for his sake, for Christ's sake. And so we all have suffering, we have difficulties in our lives, um, and those are important, and there are biblical answers to that, but that's a different sermon. We're talking about suffering that is closely connected to our obedience to Christ. Uh, That's the suffering we're talking about, so when I say that this morning, that's what I'm referring to. And so are we called to that suffering, suffering for Christ's name still today? It's a a reasonable question. We live 2,000 years after Paul wrote this. We live halfway across the world from where Paul wrote this. So do we still have the same call today to suffer for the name of Christ? Um, And I don't want to overwhelm you guys with just a ton of scripture references, but uh, at least for me, I'm much more convinced when a pastor will ask a question and he'll answer it with a myriad of texts that just leave no doubt as to what the answer is rather than uh, me just telling you what I think, me just giving you my opinion. So I'm going to give you a brief little smattering of what the New Testament says about suffering as believers that I hope will be convincing to you. John 1520, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus says to his disciples, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Acts fourteen, verse twenty-two, Paul warns his churches, he says, You will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, trials and tribulations. Uh, getting more pointed here, Second Timothy three twelve, this is really specific. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. <laughs> Another one, 1 Peter 2, verse 20 and 21. When you do good and suffer, it's commendable. That's a good thing. Why is that a good thing, Paul? Why is it good for us to suffer for doing the right thing? Because to this you have been called. For this you have been called. Christ left an example in his suffering that we should walk in his steps. And the last one, a crazy text, Romans 8, 17. Paul talks about how we are children of God and we are co-heirs with Christ and he says provided that we suffer with him. We are children of God, co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer alongside Christ. I think it's clear from the text we're still called to suffer, that we live in a different context, a completely different world almost from where Paul wrote this. We're still called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And naturally, the next question is, what does that look like for us today in America in 2022? Um, and that's a difficult question. I want to answer it uh, wisely in a way that is specific enough for you to actually go and do something with what we say, but also broad enough that it can hit everybody. And so I'm going to give one answer that's really specific and then one answer that's much more broad. The first answer is just simply one that I could not preach on suffering for the name of Christ and not fold this in to the message. A lot of you are familiar with gospel project organizations, the Joshua Project that track how far is the gospel gone, uh, where has the gospel reached in the world and it tracks people that are left unreached. And many of you may have also heard of the 1040 window. This is the longitude and latitude of the most unreached section of the planet. And so the first way that we can suffer for the name of Christ is by going to the unreached peoples of the world. And I'm going to quote John Piper here. And just a disclaimer, uh, I'm going to quote Piper or reference him I think three times in this section on suffering. I promise I read other people besides Piper. Uh, And a lot of this reading incredibly was not at all intended to be preparation for this sermon. Just reading over the past four weeks where God has consistently put suffering for his name before my face. And so Piper makes just a great observation about um, reaching the unreached peoples of the world. He says, the remaining unreached peoples are found mainly among the massive Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist population blocks that have been called the 1040 window. So that's what we just talked about. This is a sobering discovery since many of these peoples do not want any missionaries to come to them. And in many situations, it's not only illegal, but it is dangerous to spread the gospel and plant the church of Christ. This will not stop those who love lost people and long for Christ to see the reward of his suffering. But it does mean that the mission will not be finished without suffering. The mission will not be finished without suffering. And I know that's very specific, something that we can do. And I wanna encourage you to not... Uh, quickly brush that off of your shoulders like it is so tempting for us to do in 2022 America that that's for someone else. That's necessary. Someone needs to do it, but maybe not me. Uh, it's, It's incredibly necessary. Such a huge need. And let that sit on you for a minute. Let that call sit on you for a minute. How glorified God would be if just one person from Life Point Church committed their life to that cause, to reaching the unreached peoples that don't want us to come, where it's dangerous, where you'll experience suffering, how God will be glorified in that action. The second way that we could suffer, there are other ways that we can suffer here in America, is more broad, hits everyone, and the best way I could think to describe it is with a, a strange example. And so, If there's ever a moment where you're sitting in your pew today and you think that's definitely the student pastor up there this will be the moment where i bring a kind of wacky weird example you'll think that's the goofy student pastor up there Um, but i think it's i think it's important i think it's useful Uh, so i want you guys to think of a turtle Everybody knows what turtles look like. Everybody knows what turtles do. When turtles are scared, they suck back into their shell. They put their legs inside. They put their head inside of their shell. And they do that because it's safe inside the shell. That's a safe place. They're a little bit exposed, a little bit at risk when they're outside, so they suck back in to be safe. But at the same time, Turtles have to stick their neck out. They have to stick their legs out in order to progress, in order to move forward. If they want to eat and drink and move forward in life, they've got to take the risk of sticking their head and their neck out to move and make progress. And in the same way in the church in America, we're usually really, really comfortable inside of our shell. We're really comfortable in here on a Sunday morning, boldly proclaiming what we believe. And that's great, that's a good thing. We're, we're very comfortable there. We're very comfortable in our small groups, very comfortable in our good, close Christian friend groups. But sometimes we're more cautious to stick out our head and necks and uh, expose ourselves to risk, expose ourselves to suffering in order to march the gospel forward. And we, just like the turtle, have to take opportunistic chances to do that. We have to be willing to stick out our head and our necks and risk being squashed uh, to make progress and to move forward. And so I'll give you a, a specific example of what that looks like. Zach wanted me to talk here about neighbors and you may think of your neighbor, you may think of a, a coworker, a classmate, a teammate, someone you come in contact with a lot, uh, but there is a, A group of people that I see um, probably more than or at least as often as my neighbors and that is the people that work at my gym Um, I see the people that work at my gym very frequently and so when we moved here I knew I'm gonna be working in a church I'm not gonna have a lot of contact with unbelievers and so let me look for opportunities to do that and the gym is a great place a lot of unbelievers there and so I walk in the first day Uh, intentionally want to make a good connection with this guy that signs me up for a membership and so I I do that we talk um, I talk longer than I would usually talk I have to force myself to do that and we make a connection and so every time we go in me and him have a conversation we build that relationship a little bit and eventually uh, not even me but my wife invites him to our Easter service and he says Easter, that's Sunday, isn't it? And we said, yeah, Easter is Sunday. And uh, he said, I work Sundays. I'll try to get it covered, but I don't know if I'll be able to come. So he couldn't get it covered, he didn't come. And so then there's that awkward phase of I've invited you to something that's spiritual and you didn't come. And uh, so we get over that phase. And now finally, we've got this workout schedule together. We're gonna work out together. That's just a small step. We'll get to know each other. Maybe I can invite him into my home and i tell you all this not as a positive example but as a negative example that i think is really relatable that i'm so slow it's been over three months to stick my neck out for the name of christ with this young man because i know the second that i share with him i am opening the door to potential persecution to potential difficulty the second i share with him he could get mad Uh, We could argue, he could just reject me, Uh, we might break that great superficial friendship where all we do is talk about working out. I like that, I don't want to threaten that, I don't want to break that. And the second I share with him, the second I try to encourage him to follow Christ, I'm just cracking the door open to potential suffering, to potential suffering for the sake of Christ, however small it may be. And I think that that's relatable. I think suffering for us in 2022 looks like just opening the door to potential suffering. Uh, It may walk in. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. But we've got to just open up the door like the turtle, stick out our head and be willing to make progress, be willing to move forward, be willing to advance the gospel, even at the risk of suffering. Even at the risk of some negative reaction, even at the risk of some persecution, we've got to be willing to just crack open that door in our relationships with our neighbors, with our uh, teammates, with our coworkers, with the people at our gym. We've got to be willing to suffer for Christ's name. And the last question um, on suffering is just a personal question, a reflective question of are we doing this? Am I doing this? Do I ever experience suffering for the name of Christ? Do I ever experience persecution for the name of Christ? And I want to be careful with this. I know some of you, maybe many of you, have experienced that in the past couple of weeks with the Roe v. Wade decision as you stood for uh, the unborn. Uh, you may have experienced some suffering, some backlash, some persecution for that and uh, I want to relate to that and and encourage you in that, that that's not necessarily a bad thing, that Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Great is your reward in heaven. But I also want us to have time to reflect on this. I think a lot of us fall short of this standard that I didn't come up with um, and that I don't necessarily live up to. Um, But this standard set by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. I was reading again, Piper, a month ago, I think it was two days before I got asked to preach this sermon and read maybe the most convicting paragraph I've read in my entire life. And he just reads this verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what Paul means by that is if the dead are not raised, if Christianity is not true, if Jesus is not really bearing my sins on the cross, then my life is a tragedy, it's embarrassing, it's pitiful because I have sacrificed and suffered and given so much for the name of Christ that if that's not true, how embarrassing is my life? How much of a waste was my life? And Piper just turns that around And he says, can we say that about our lives? Can we say that our lives would be pitiful tragedies if the gospel is not true, that we have given so much for the gospel, we have suffered so much for the sake of Christ, that if it's actually not true, our lives are to be pitied above anyone else in society. What a pitiful life we've lived. That is a high standard, it's a bold thing to say, Um, And it's not just the standard for Paul, for Paul. Notice there it says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's not just writing this about himself, he's saying this should be true of Christians, that we could all say this. And uh, I'll just answer for myself, there's no way that I could say that right now. My life has not been a pitiful tragedy because of how much I've given for the name of Christ. But man, I long to shoot for that. I long for that to be the standard that we hold ourselves to, that we would be able to say that with Paul one day. That would be, that would be incredible. All right, enough on suffering for now. We're going to move on to that second element. So we're suffering, suffering together, uh, suffering in unity. And the question here is why is unity important to suffering? What do these two have in common? And that is that suffering scatters people. Suffering has a tendency to make people scatter And disperse and we've all either experienced this or maybe watched it in a movie um, when the new football coach comes into town and he says I'm gonna run these boys into the ground I'm gonna run them until they puke and he does that he takes them off to camp takes the football team he makes them suffer he makes them run he makes them do push-ups and what always happens in that scenario is half the team quits they quit, they, say, they see that suffering and they say, I'm out of here, I'm not interested in that kind of suffering, I'm not interested in suffering that deeply for this cause. And the same is true of all walks of life, the same is true of Christianity, that suffering when suffering and persecution comes, it makes people scatter. Uh, people step back and they say, I'm, I'm not willing to suffer that much for that cause. And so Paul is writing here and he's encouraging them. He's saying uh, in this event of persecution and suffering, I need you to be unified. I need you to pull together tighter than ever, tighter than before, because it's gonna threaten to rip you apart. I need you to be unified. And we're gonna see in a moment uh, how important that unity is, how that works to glorify Christ. So we're suffering, we're doing it together. And the last element is uh, being fearless. Uh, being fearless, we should not be frightened in anything by our opponents. And again, the question there is pretty obvious: is how do we do that? How do we suffer without fear? Uh, it's enough, Paul, for you to say that we should suffer for the name of Christ. Now you're saying that we should do it without being fearful. Now you're saying that we shouldn't be frightened in the midst of suffering and persecution. How exactly are we supposed to do that? And Paul has just given uh, an excellent answer in the book of Philippians if you just look at his life and we've already covered some of this two weeks ago Paul is sitting in jail saying I'm rejoicing yes again I'll rejoice because the gospel is going forward people are more bold to proclaim Christ's name and I've had the opportunity to share with all these Roman guards. And then last week we saw he's got these two choices before him: to live as Christ, to die as gain, so I could be killed for the sake of Christ, or I could continue on. And he says, "To die is better. I would get to go and be with the Lord." And, but he says, to live, I could continue on in fruitful labor here. I could continue to advance the gospel. And he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. Uh, my only desire is that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then in a couple of weeks in Philippians 3.8, he's gonna say that I count everything as loss. Why, why is Paul willing to count everything as loss? For the sake of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For Paul, he was able to look at jail and at death and at leaving everything in the world behind fearlessly because he held knowing God and making God known so much higher above everything else in his life. He held those two things above everything, even his own comfort. Even Paul's own comfort couldn't even uh, compare to the worth that he saw in knowing Christ Jesus and making him known to other people. And when we know Christ that way, when we know the Lord the way that Paul did, when we desire to see the gospel go forward the way that Paul did, we can look at suffering. We can look at persecution and not blink and not be frightened, not be scared. We can be not only willing to suffer for Christ, but doing it without fear. That's a pretty incredible combination. Last thing, I told you we would flip back to the second half of uh, Philippians 1.28 eventually, and here we are. Uh, we get to look at this final question. Why do we do this? Why do we suffer uh, for Christ? How is suffering a gift? That's what Paul says. It's been granted to you. It's been gifted to you not only that you should believe, but that you should suffer for the sake of Christ. How is it a gift for us that we should suffer? And we get this two part answer in the second half of verse 28. Uh, This two part answer. The first one is that non-believers in our suffering that is unified, and it, it has to be these two things. It's unified, if it's not unified, if only four or five people from the church are willing to suffer for the name of Christ, The unbelieving world can just say, look at those wackos. Look at those radicals that are willing to suffer. And then look at the rest of church that is not. Uh, If it's not unified, it's not powerful. If it's not fearless, it's not powerful. If it's not fearless, we're no different than anyone else that's suffering persecution and difficulties in life. It's got to be fearless. It has to be unified. And when it's both those things the lost world, an unbelieving world, looks on the suffering of the church, and they see the gospel of Christ proclaimed more clearly than they could, I think, this side of eternity. Uh, they see the gospel in crystal clear clarity in the sufferings of the church. The nonbelieving world looks, this is a clear sign to them, that's our opponents, of their destruction. They look at the church's suffering and they say there is no way that those people could suffer together without fear, willingly, unless what they proclaimed was actually true. There's no way that they could do that. And so the lost world will look on the suffering of the church and they will see the gospel and some of them will look and see the gospel as clear as they'll ever see it and they'll still turn and run away from Christ but many of them will look on the suffering of the church and they will bend the knee to Christ for the first time in their lives. Paul here is a little bit of a prophet. If we believe what he says here, that as the church suffers, the unbelieving world sees the truth of their destruction, then we shouldn't be surprised to find that the church usually thrives and grows and explodes in the midst of persecution in some of the most difficult places in the world to preach the gospel, that's where the gospel explodes. That's what's happening here in the early church. There is heavy persecution on Christians and the gospel is going and growing faster than ever. That's because when the church suffers, willingly, together, the gospel is just clearly proclaimed. A clear picture is there and people's lives are transformed. There's a second part of this gift uh, second half of verse 28, uh, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And so, really, we see the same reality in our sufferings as unbelievers do. We just see it from the opposite angle. And so, unbelievers look on the suffering of the church and they say, There's no way that they could do that unless the reality that they proclaim is real. And we look on our own suffering and we say, There is no way that I could suffer willingly fearlessly, joyfully, unless God was within me, unless God was doing this powerful work in my heart. I don't have the own, my own strength to just happily, willingly suffer, but when Christ is in me, I can do that. And so as we suffer for the name of Christ, we look on our own lives and we grow confident and bold and as assured as ever of our eventual salvation, of our eventual glorification, Uh, That is the twofold gift that Christian suffering brings. The unbelieving world sees the gospel proclaimed and we grow in confidence and assurance of our salvation. So... I've kind of thrown a lot at you, a lot of questions um, and I wanted to boil it down into one just concise action statement for us to take, for us to write down, uh, meditate on throughout the week that may help you remember what we went through this morning and so this is my, my stab at that. We are all called to suffer for Christ and as we do that with unity and without fear, God will use us as bright signs to a lost world. As we suffer willingly, in unison, without fear, God will use us to proclaim the gospel better than he ever could to a world, to a city that is lost. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, that brings truth, God. We are humbled by the call this morning to suffer for the sake of your name. God, we need your power to do that uh, in a way that is unified, that is together uh, with the whole church, that is without fear. God, give us uh, a love for knowing you and for making you known to other people that elevates above every other desire in our lives, that is so much higher than any other desire in our lives that we could look on difficulty and persecution without fear and even with the joy that comes in knowing you and in being dependent on you. It's in your name we pray, amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.